Uh, I invite you to take your copy of God's Word and open it to Jonah chapter 3. If you are using a Bible that is uh, under the seat in front of you, one of the chair Bibles, um, I had recently been telling you all of the wrong pages to go to because somebody, on purpose or unintentionally, snuck an older copy of our chair uh, Bibles under the chair that I normally sit in when I go to grab it. So you'll find Jonah chapter 3 on page 727. Annalee, is that right? When you find it, you tell me. Annalee's the one that, uh, through her dad, Joel, our student minister, uh, said, I think, Dad, I think Pastor Stephen's crazy. He keeps saying page numbers that don't line up. So 727 should be Jonah chapter 3. Annalee, if I'm right, you give me a thumbs up. Did you bring, she brought her own Bible today. And she said 727 is like Psalms. All right. Somebody got it on the chair Bible 727? We're good. All right. Rock and roll. See, I'm not crazy today. Today. Uh, One other item of correction while you find your way to Jonah chapter 3. Last week, I attributed credit wrongly to a word of great wisdom. Uh, We noticed last week in Jonah chapter chapter 1, the... um, sailors on the boat with Jonah ask Jonah when it's discovered that he is the reason for uh, all of their travail on the sea. They say, what is this that you have done? And that that phrase is exactly used uh, by God to Eve in the garden. And I said it was in a conversation with Ken Steffen uh, that I uh, was made aware of this. And that is right. But Ken's not the one who pointed it out. His wife, who is probably far greater in wisdom even than he, as most of us with good wives can attest. She was the one who noted it. Danelle did and told Ken and Ken told me. And I remember that. I just didn't attribute it correctly. So Danelle and Ken, thank you both for uh, pointing out those uh, just awesome uh, little nuggets uh, in God's Word that show us that this is really one story all working together told from the same divine perspective. Jonah chapter 3 is our text this morning. I wonder if you've ever received bad news that was just the sort of news that you needed. Not because it was bad, but because the badness, the, the gravity, the, the grave nature of that news served to focus your thinking and to draw a line in the sand, to set you on a clear course of action. Maybe you received bad news like uh, the colonialists did so many years ago when Paul Revere made his famous midnight ride saying, the redcoats are coming, the redcoats are coming. That's bad news. An invading army is on the way, but it was the sort of news that focused the minds and the intentions and the commitments of the people living in the colonies to assert and protect uh, their declared independence. Maybe you received bad medical news, a dangerous diagnosis, maybe of cancer or some other serious disease. That bad news on its, on its own may seem really, really bad, but it's the sort of bad news that gets you focused on what you need to do moving forward, on changes in your life that need to take place, of a course of action or a course of treatment that needs to be engaged in. Sometimes bad news is just the kind of news we need to hear because it sharpens our thinking, it clarifies things for us, it draws lines in the sand that move us to action. We're going to see some bad news that drives people to action in Jonah chapter 3 today. And we're going to see uh, a really encouraging, uplifting, awesome response to bad news. 
In Jonah chapter 3, as Jonah is now obedient, the second time he's called by God to preach to Nineveh, God demonstrates mercy, not to Jonah, but to the Ninevites, when they actually listen to and heed Jonah's message that God gave to him. Here's the main idea that comes to us from Jonah chapter 3, the idea that, that, that is sort of governing this chapter of Jonah. It is that God is merciful to sinners who believe him and repent. God is merciful to sinners who believe him and repent. Now that's good news, but there's bad news that comes before that. We'll get to it in a moment. This morning, I want for us to know with certainty from God's word that God responds to all who genuinely repent of sin and trust in him with mercy, with grace, with kindness, forgiveness. Let's see how this plays out in Jonah's life and the life of the Ninevites. Would you stand with me as we honor God by reading his word? Follow along in your Bibles, Jonah chapter 3. I want to start with chapter 2, verse 10, because it helps to kind of set the context for us once more. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land, chapter 3. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh, according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through, uh, and published through Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he said he would do to them, and he did not do it. This is God's word. You may be seated. God is merciful to sinners who believe him and repent. We see in the first few, three, four verses of Jonah chapter 3, this truth that God calls to sinners. God calls to sinners. God calls out to those who have rejected him and rebelled from him and run from him and denied his existence. He has the mercy, the grace, the kindness to call to them. Here in Jonah chapter 3, we receive Jonah's second call to prophetic ministry, or at least to this particular uh, uh, assignment to Nineveh. Jonah's second call in chapter 3 closely parallels the first call in chapter 1. There are some very distinct similarities. First of all, the the word of the Lord comes to Jonah and says, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city. Happens in chapter 3, happened in chapter 1. And in response, Jonah gets up. Jonah arose. Now, in Jonah chapter 1, Jonah arose to go the opposite direction from Nineveh. But in Jonah chapter 3, he will arise and... Go to Nineveh. You're reading well. 
There are some similarities in the structure, and, and we're meant to see this in Jonah, that, that God in his persistence and in his determination to get Jonah to Nineveh, he's not going to let this prophet off the hook. He's going to get Jonah to that city by hook or by crook. Now, there's some contrast to chapter 1 in Jonah's second call as well. In chapter 1, God says, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, because their evil has come up before me. In Jonah chapter 3, God says, for the second time, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. Maybe so as to say, and by the way, Jonah, don't mess this up. I'm not giving you creative license with the message. Uh, I allowed you one opportunity to obey willingly, and now I'm causing you to obey with some force, and you are going to preach what I tell you to preach. And in contrast to chapter 1, Jonah actually goes to Nineveh. He doesn't try to run. He doesn't try to flee the presence of the Lord, as we read in chapter 1. This time, he obediently goes. So what? Jonah chapter 3 and Jonah's second call where we learn as God is using Jonah to call to sinners in Nineveh, we learn that God determines what obedience is at the end of the day. His command, his divine authority determines what obedience is. For Jonah, obedience is not only going and preaching to these uh, wicked, pagan, sinful people in Nineveh, but specifically preaching the message God has given to him. Verse 3 tells us that Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Now, these are two funny phrases in the Hebrew in which Jonah or one of his other prophetic counterparts wrote this story in. That phrase, an exceedingly great city, is in Hebrew, literally, a great city to God. And that phrase, a, a, a journey... A, a, a three, it was a three days journey in breadth is literally something like three, it, it was a, uh, a visit was a three day journey. So we have this phrase that, uh, telling us what sort of city Nineveh is. It's a great city to God, a visit being a three day journey. Now there are a lot of things we know about the Assyrians of whom the Ninevites were part of that people, part of that culture. We know that they were wicked. These were, as we said before, heads of enemies on sticks outside the city gates kind of people, not the sort of folks that an Israelite like Jonah would have wanted to go and preach to. And yet, God tells us in his word that this is a great city to him. We'll see about its greatness at the end of Jonah chapter 4 next week, but it's important, I think, just for us to notice for a moment that cities full of wickedness can also be great cities to God. There are lots of different reasons why, but perhaps because God intends to show His, His glory, His mercy, His grace in a great way among a city full of, full of wicked, evil people. This three-day journey in breadth probably doesn't mean that uh, the city of Nineveh was 45 miles wide, which would be about how long you could walk about that far in three days, but more so it was the kind of city that takes you three days to visit. The first day is usually a diplomatic meeting day. Uh, dignitaries arrive, you meet with the king or other diplomats or city officials. The second day is business day. That's when you, you uh, do whatever work there is yet to be done. And the third day is day for departure, farewell, and that sort of thing. 
Jonah goes to this great city of God that take, that's a, it's a three-day visit sort of city. And on the day that is set aside for formalities and general welcome into the city and that sort of thing, on the first day, Jonah preaches a five-word sermon to Nineveh. Now, it's more than five words in English, but in Hebrew, it's five words. Yet 40 days and Nineveh will be destroyed. That's good news, right? Not if you're a Ninevite. Yet 40 days and Nineveh will be destroyed. Jonah's sermon is a five-word sermon of judgment. Now, the Ninevites would have known because uh, Jonah would have looked different. He would have dressed different. He would have spoken a little bit differently. They would have known that he was an Israelite and he was not one of their own. They would have known the God that he was representing as a prophet. And so they hear his sermon, Yet 40 days and Nineveh will be destroyed. And we'll see them in a moment take it to heart. It's interesting. God told Jonah in his second call, preach, call out against Nineveh the message that I tell you. Yet 40 days and Nineveh will be destroyed were precisely the words that God gave to Jonah to speak to this city. God said, tell them a really bad message that I give to you. Don't change a word of it, Jonah. We've been down this road of disobedience before. You know how it goes. It's wet. It's stinky. It's bad. Do what I tell you. God knows precisely the people of Nineveh, the person of Jonah, all of the circumstances. God knows precisely what message is necessary to get through to these Ninevites. I wonder, Christian, do you know the necessary message that God has given us as Christians in the world? It's not a message of judgment. It's not a message of 40 days, yet 40 days and the world will be destroyed. The message that God has given to Christians, followers of His Son, Jesus Christ, is the gospel. And the gospel does start with bad news, really bad news. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The wages of sin is death. And yet very quickly, the gospel moves from very, very bad news that all of us stand as rebels before God, deserving God's judgment, and turns very quickly to say, and yet there is a means of receiving God's mercy. There's a way to to have God's grace. There's a way to be forgiven and in right relationship with God. And it's through Jesus, His Son, God in flesh, God with skin on, God who dwelt among us, living a sinless life and giving that life on a cross, taking the place of sinners, taking the wrath of God for us, being buried and then raised on the third day so that all who come to him and repent of sin and trust in him, give their lives over to him as king, will be saved, will be made right with God. This is the message that God has given to the church for the world today. This is the message that God has given to us to proclaim to others. In many ways, Christians, we are not unlike Jonah. We are the people of God, called by His grace, saved by His Son, Jesus, who gave His life for us, who was raised in glory. We are called by the risen Jesus to be messengers of grace. In a similar way to how Jonah was called by God to be a deliverer of a message, to Nineveh, and we are called by Christ to be proclaimers of God's judgment against sin and His grace for repenting sinners. The gospel starts with bad news, but it gets good really quickly for those who will hear it. And we have been given by God a message to preach. Now the gospel, my friends, is God's message that He has told us. The gospel is not for us to wing it. 
The gospel is not our message to craft. The contrasting bad news of God's holy justice and good news of mercy to the undeserving is not remade generation by generation. It stays the same. It is the king's message that he has sent us as his messengers to relay faithfully and clearly and often. Christian, do you know it? Do you know the message that God has commanded and given to us to proclaim to a lost, dying, dark world? Have you internalized this? It's not hard for Jonah to internalize his message. Five words in Hebrew, seven or so in English, yet 40 days and Nineveh will be destroyed. That's easy. The gospel is a little deeper than that. But Christian, you who say you know Christ and have received his grace, have you internalized this message of the gospel such that you can speak it with fluency and not just recite it, from rote repetition or memorization, although that's not necessarily harmful, but can you speak with gospel fluency so as to, not to shape or rechange, but to tailor the parts of the message specifically to individuals that you're speaking to? Do you believe the gospel? Do you believe that it's good news for sinners? Do you believe the bad news of the gospel? That sin really matters? That God will really judge it? Do you believe the good news of the gospel, that Jesus really had to die to pay for our sins? And not only that he had to, but that he did? Do you believe that he really rose from the dead in power and glory, that he sits at the right hand of God now as King of kings, Lord of lords, ruling and reigning over all creation, waiting for a day when he will return to institute his kingdom in a new heavens and new earth? Do you believe it? And Christian, have you submitted to Christ's authority as divine king to preach that gospel? just as he has spoken. It's how he calls to sinners. We know God calls to sinners. He does it through Jonah and he does it through the church. This is God's act of of grace and mercy to a lost and dying world to tell them there's a way to be saved. Have we held on to that message? Or have we perverted it or softened it or maybe made it too harsh? Have we changed the gospel in some way so as to cause it to lose its teeth? Or to, to lose its reinvigorating nature. Paul the Apostle writes to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 1 through 7, to remind a church of what the gospel is. You would think that maybe 20 or 30 years after the death, burial, resurrection, and ascension of Christ, that the church would have still been rock solid with the gospel, and yet it seems that the Corinthians needed some reminding. So, Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast fast to the word that I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. He says, for I delivered to you as of first importance. There was nothing more primary, nothing more important than this message, Paul says. I delivered to you as a first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. Gospel point number one. Christ died for our sins because God in His Word said it must be so. Verse four, that He was buried. Jesus really died. He was really buried. He was not secreted away and resuscitated back to life or, or, or cared for or nourished in a certain way so that they could pretend a resurrection. No, he was really buried. 
Paul says that he was raised on the third day, miraculously in power and in glory, in accordance with the scriptures. So, Christ died for sins because God in his word said he had to. Jesus was buried and raised again from the dead because God in his word said that he had to. And that he appeared to Cephas, who is Peter, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. And then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. This Jesus, who was raised in glory, was raised publicly and displayed for people to see that they might know that he is risen. And because of his resurrection, the call now goes out to all who will hear it. Turn from your sin. Trust in this risen Jesus. Follow him as king of your life. Why? Because God has called to sinners through this wonderful gospel message. God calls to sinners. But maybe more, I don't know if it's more importantly, but it's certainly where our eye goes in Jonah chapter 3. We see second that God gives mercy in exchange for faith and repentance. That God gives mercy to sinners who believe in turn. I love verse 5 of Jonah chapter 3. Verse 4, Jonah calls out his simple message. Yet 40 days, Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people believed God. Now think about that a second. The people of Nineveh believed God. Who's the one speaking to them? Jonah. Who did they believe? God. Just, that's free. Just think about that. Jonah is the, he's the title character of this book, of this part of our scriptures. But the focus in these verses is on the Ninevites and what they do. The Ninevites who hear not just Jonah's word, but hear God's word and believe it. They believe destruction is coming. God, this God of Jonah is going to destroy us. Now notice, the word that they heard from Jonah was simple and it was clear. Again, it was God's message, but it was simple and it was clear. Often even in our preaching and our gospel sharing, conversationally, relationally with other people who don't yet know Christ, often our aim is not to convince people to... is often to convince people that we're right about Christianity and that they are wrong. But that's not supposed to be our biblical aim. Our biblical aim in proclaiming the gospel, a simple, clear message, our aim is to help people believe God. That's what the Ninevites did. They believed God. Apologetics, learning how to defend your faith uh, against difficult questions or lines of questioning or philosophies of the world. Apologetics are good and helpful. And I have been helped to a great degree by, by many apologists over the years. But winning an argument, winning a debate is not the aim of the gospel. The aim of the gospel is to lead people to believe God through a simple, clear message of judgment against sin and grace for repenting sinners. The Apostle Paul, again, in Romans chapter 10, I believe I referenced this verse last week or the week before, but it's just so important, so pertinent to what we're seeing in Jonah Paul highlights the importance of speaking the gospel with clarity so that people might believe. He says in Romans 10, 14 to 17, How then will they, people who are far from God, how will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him who they've never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? And so faith comes from hearing. 
and hearing through the word of Christ. Let me encourage you just in in seeing the importance of a clear, simple message from the Lord that brings about belief in God. As you think about sharing the gospel with other people, don't focus so much on trying to convince them that God exists. Focus on calling them to believe God. Make your message simple and clear. You ought to be able to relay the gospel message in 60 seconds or less to anybody who asks you. It ought to point directly to a person's need for salvation and God's provision for that need in Christ, how Jesus died for sins, was raised again, and the call to believe. Not the call to be convinced, not the call to consider it further, although that that may be appropriate in certain times, but a call to believe. Dear friend, you who do not know Christ, who have not believed this message, would you believe it today? And if not, why not? I love the response of the Ninevites, these people that we would not expect this sort of response from. Remember, again, these are heads of your enemies on sticks outside your city gates kind of folks. And here Jonah has the audacity to go to that city as an outsider and say, yet 40 days and Nineveh will be destroyed. And these people believe God's message. And it results in citywide repentance. The whole city of Nineveh, which we learn at the end of Jonah chapter 4, is 120 persons who did not know their right hand from their left, and also many cattle. This whole city of Nineveh responding in repentance. This is surprising to me, because Jonah's message nowhere told them what to do. Jonah said, yet 40 days, Nineveh will be destroyed. Walk down the block a little ways. Yet 40 days, Nineveh will be destroyed. Goes into the market square. Yet 40 days, Nineveh will be destroyed. He goes into, uh, I don't know, some other places of the city where people go get food and drink and whatever. Yet 40 days and Nineveh will be destroyed. And the people hear that message and respond in sackcloth and ashes. They respond in repentance. Where in any point along the way did Jonah say, yet 40 days, Nineveh will be destroyed, but... There's no but. It's just this message of judgment. And these people who believe the God that sent Jonah immediately repent. This is shocking. And we might like to assume that perhaps Jonah snuck in some some hope for mercy in his message. But the scripture does not say so. And we would do poorly to speculate about what scripture does not say. But what we see is that in Nineveh, from the least to the greatest... From the king in his palace to the cow in her pasture, everyone fasts from food and water and puts on sackcloth. Think burlap or big you know, coffee bags that, uh, that, that they ship coffee in overseas. They put burlap on and sit in ashes. This may seem strange to some of us, but this is a very common, regular, normal, ancient Near Eastern practice of mourning. If you're mourning somebody who has died, if you're mourning your own sin, if you're grieving perhaps the destruction of your city by an invading force, this is what you do. You put on sackcloth, you sit in dirt and ashes, and you mourn. I wonder if you caught the command of the king from verses 6 through 9. The king sends out a... He, hear, he, he gets word of Jonah's message... He seems to believe God as the other Ninevites do, and he makes a proclamation telling everyone to wear, to, to fast from food and water, to wear sackcloth, but also he adds to call out to God and to turn from your evil way and the violence of his hand. Friends, this is what repentance looks like. Repentance is, is 
hearing God's warning of judgment and stopping all of the things that are incurring his judgment. And this message comes from, of all people, the king, who himself probably had the most to lose in genuflecting before a foreign god. His question in verse 9 sticks out like a red flag. Who knows? He gives this proclamation of the whole city. Who knows? Maybe God will see what we're doing. Maybe he'll turn and relent from his fierce anger so that we might not perish. Who knows? This question, I think, reveals that the Ninevites are, they're really shooting in the dark as to what this God that Jonah represents requires and is looking for. They have absolutely no certainty whatsoever that their collective mourning and repentance will result in anything. Who knows? It's worth a shot. We're all going to die in 40 days anyway. Let's see if we can buy a little bit of time. It's interesting because this question parallels the attempts to appease God by the sailors in Jonah chapter 6. The storm is raging at sea. The men are each calling out to their own gods. The captain goes and wakes Jonah up from the bottom of the ship. And he tells Jonah, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us. Maybe he'll hear your voice and care and spare our lives. Both the sailors and the Ninevites are pictures of pagan people who have no idea what to do to stop God's judgment. And they do the only thing they know. Mourn, fast, repent of sin. Now the irony that's revealed to us in the question that the king asks is that there is someone who knows. There is someone who knows. Jonah knows. The king says, who knows? Who knows what will happen? Friends, Jonah knows. Jonah chapter 4, verse 2. We'll look at it more next week. But Jonah says, I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Who knows what will happen if the people repent? Jonah knows. Does Jonah share that with the people of Nineveh? No. Now, perhaps he's just being obedient to what God has told him. But yet, Jonah knows. And he's always known. He's known from Jonah chapter 1 that if these people will repent, that God will relent of his disaster. More to say about that next week. Verse 10. The people respond in repentance, hoping against hope that this God that Jonah represents will see and be merciful. And then in verse 10, God answers. Not with the judgment that he told Jonah to proclaim, but with mercy. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. Jonah chapter 3, verse 10, is the climax of this story. This is where everything kind of comes to a head in Jonah. I know we still have another chapter, and there's a lot of interesting stuff there, but this is the climax of Jonah. This is the high point of the story. This is where everything in Jonah's life and, and story, at least in the book of Jonah, has been leading to. It was God's intent from the beginning to get Jonah to Nineveh. It's what he told him to do in chapter 1. It's what he corrected Jonah from not doing in, Jonah, in, the, in the end of Jonah chapter 1 and in Jonah chapter 2. The question immediately is, will Jonah go to Nineveh? And initially the answer is no. Jonah would rather die in, by drowning at sea than go to Nineveh. 
But then God sends a fish to swallow Jonah. And now the question is, well, will Jonah survive this rebellion to get to Nineveh? What's going on? Is God going to kill him off and start over with someone else? As we read again in Jonah chapter 2, verse 10, the Lord speaks to the fish and it vomited Jonah out on the dry land. The question at the beginning of chapter 3, when the word of the Lord comes to Jonah a second time is, is Jonah going to go this time? Is he going to do what God told him to do? And, and more importantly, what will happen if he does? What's going to happen with these Ninevites has kind of been the question all along in Jonah. And now here's our answer. When Jonah goes to Nineveh, preaches his five-word sermon of judgment because of their sin, and the people respond in repentance, climax of the story, God doesn't destroy them. God gives mercy. When the people of Nineveh, king to cow, believe God's message, and hoping against hope, repent of their sin, God relents from disaster. Ninevites, these rebels, these enemies of God's people, undeserving, wicked pagans, receive mercy from God. Let that sit with you a minute. These people who knew nothing of God and wanted nothing to do with God, when faced with the reality that he has power over life and death, when they repent before him, he gives mercy. God relented of the disaster that he said he would do, and he did not do it. In many ways, friends, we're not all together different from Jonah. There's a lot of similarities there. But to be sure, we are Nineveh. We are dead in our trespasses and sins. Paul the Apostle tells us, Ephesians chapter 2, even from birth, we are dead in trespasses and sins as we walk in wickedness and violence and rebellion against God. We are Nineveh. We need, and prayerfully, we have received, we have heard a message of God's warning about what our sin deserves. We need to hear that message. Yet 40 days, yet 40 weeks, yet 40 years, and we, if the direction of our heart never changes, will be destroyed. God is a holy God who judges sin justly. We need to know that we as sinners stand in the rightful place of God's wrath, recipients of his wrath if nothing changes, dead dead in our trespasses and sins. Judgment, friends, is our future if nothing changes. This is the warning of God that we all must hear, that sin deserves death. But remember, because Jonah chapter 3, verse 10 tells us, God shows mercy to repenting sinners. We all deserve death, but God shows mercy to sinners who recognize what they deserve and ask God for mercy, who fall on His grace. Hebrews 9, 26 to 28 tells us this, that as it is, Christ has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Sin deserves death, and there is a death for sins. Christ Jesus died for sins. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. We are Nineveh, sinners in need of mercy. God's merciful character continues and in greater fashion and in greater form, not just through prophets like Jonah, but through the greater prophet Jesus, 
who comes bringing a message of repentance for salvation, who gives his life to absorb God's wrath in the place of sinners who deserve it, and whose life is raised from the grave to give righteousness and justification to God to everyone who trusts him and falls under the blood of his sacrifice. We are all Nineveh. We need a Savior. We need God's mercy. In Christ, we have it in full and perfectly. So what will you do? Hearing this word of hope for repenting sinners, will you see your sin, your rebellion against God? Will you believe on Christ? Will you turn from sin and be saved? Or will you continue to oppose this word and the God who speaks it? There's a group of people even worse off than Nineveh, if you can imagine. It was a generation of Jesus' own day, specifically the Pharisees and the scribes, who were determined not to believe these religious leaders in Israel who did not want to believe that Jesus was the Messiah, the Son of God. In Matthew 12, verse 41, we looked at this a little bit last week. Jesus said, when the Pharisees asked him for a sign, uh, and they asked sort of sarcastically, give us a sign, give us a miracle so we can know that you are who you say you are. He said, the only sign you get is the sign of Jonah. Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days, three nights, and he was vomited up on dry land. Son of man will be in the belly of the earth three days and three nights and then be raised. And then after that, he says to the Pharisees, the men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. There are a group of people even worse off than the Ninevites. Those who've seen Christ, heard Christ, known of him, and still said, nope. Jesus Christ, the obedient prophet, greater than Jonah, whose resurrection is even greater than Jonah's rescue from the fish, this Jesus is here. The person who makes available the mercy of God because he has stood in the place of rebels is here. He's present in the gospel, but he's present as God among us even today, and he is ready This Jesus, risen Jesus, is ready and glad to give mercy and grace and life to the sinner who sees him and believes him and turns from their rebellion to trust in this merciful God. He's ready to do it. He's ready to show mercy. Now, friend, that's news. That's good news. That's great news. That's life-changing news. That's news we all need to hear. We who believe it. We need to take that news to our great city as well. God loves showing mercy to sinners who repent. If you're a sinner who needs God's mercy, it's free to you today. If you'll turn from your sin, trust in Christ, give your whole life over to him as Lord. God's mercy and grace are ready for you in abundance. Dear Christian, don't sleep on God's grace. Don't sleep on his mercy. Don't get bored of it. Don't get tired of it. Revel in it. Know that you, apart from Christ, are Nineveh. But in Jesus are sons and daughters of the creator of all things. Revel in the gospel and shout it from the rooftops. Let's pray that God would make it so in us.